Wait, can we make a fake Hamilton Tavern Talks intro instead of bum bum bum? Da 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 da. Ta 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 Tavern Talks. Don't sue us for copyright. Welcome back to Tavern Talks, a revolutionary podcast from Francis Tavern Museum. I'm Mary Chaltis Ottomanelli, Programs and Events Assistant. I'm Allie Delianis, Communications and Marketing Coordinator. On this episode, we'll be talking about two of our more famous founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr, and their connection to Francis Tavern. So let's start with Hamilton. Our $10 founding father was born in 1755 or 1757 on the Caribbean island Nevis. He was the second illegitimate son of James Hamilton and Rachel Fossett. His mother was previously married and had fled her abusive husband without a divorce and had both Hamilton and his brother out of wedlock. Rachel died in 1768, and the two boys had a not-so-great childhood. Hamilton arrived in New York City in 1772 and enrolled in King's College. The original campus was located at Trinity Church on Wall Street. Today, King's College is Columbia University. By the 1770s, Hamilton was a thriving teen in New York City, growing into the patriot that we study today. In 1774, he joined the volunteer militia called the Hearts of Oak. This founding father had one of the most impressive resumes military commander, lawyer, and politician. He was a major contributor to the Federalist Papers, which promoted the ratification of the Constitution. He also founded the New York Post and was the creator of modern American economics, founding the Bank of New York in 1784, which is the oldest bank in the nation. Aaron Burr was born in 1756 into a relatively famous family. His grandfather was famous preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards. His father was the president of Princeton University. Burr's parents both died when he was an infant. Burr graduates from Princeton at the age of 16, kind of like a child prodigy, and went into study law in the years leading up to the Revolution. In 1775, under the leadership of Benedict Arnold, Burr took part in the Canadian expedition to Quebec. And although it was unsuccessful, Burr was promoted to captain, garnering the attention as a rising soldier in the Continental Army, eventually rising to the ranks of colonel by his retirement in 1779. Burr's post-war accomplishments are pretty impressive as well. He was a successful lawyer in New York City, served as the New York State Assemblyman from 1784 to 85, the New York State Attorney General from 1789 to 91, U.S. Senator from New York in 1791 to 1797, and served as Vice President of the United States from 1801 to 1805 under Thomas Jefferson. He was also tried by the United States in 1807 for treason, but that is a completely other story for a very different episode of Tavern Talks. But in the meantime, Google it. Seriously. Google it. So we can't use the Hamilton songs, but I have no problem silently humming them in the background. Now, if you've seen the musical or listened to the soundtrack, we're going to break this podcast down into three acts using three different songs to discuss different era in Burr and Hamilton's lives. <coughs> Act one, raise a glass to freedom, the young patriots. <laughs> Okay, I gotta not laugh. (sighs) In the musical, Hamilton is drinking with John Lawrence, the Marquis de Lafayette, and Hercules Mulligan. 
The tavern backdrop is actually France's tavern, and this makes a lot of sense. By 1774, the Sons of Liberty were using France's tavern as one of their secret headquarters. France's tavern was also one of the most popular bars in the city because of the food and liquor selection. And it was also one of the largest taverns, which means you can fit more people, and the more people you have, the more opinions you get, and the more debates that you have as well. Taverns were essential during the 18th century. They were gathering places where you could speak freely. The only other likely large gathering place you were exposed to was a church service, which isn't the right time or place to discuss your grievances with the king. Tavern owners like Samuel Francis become more and more frustrated as business owners leading up to the revolution. Think about it this way. Samuel Francis is being taxed left and right. Things even down to his tavern license are being taxed under the Stamp Act. The tea that you like to be served during midday is being taxed. The sugar that you like in that tea is also being taxed. Even down to the paint and the glass that he uses in his tavern are being taxed under the Townsend Acts. He was getting very frustrated with Parliament. Taverns were essential to debate, to complain, and to hear news of what was going on in the colonies. He had newspaper subscriptions sent in from all over the colonies and even different European countries. The news of the day was found out a lot easier in a tavern because not many people could read, so orating became one of the most important ways to spread news and even your beliefs. It's important to note that taverns weren't exactly a place for everyone. Women weren't allowed in taverns. Enslaved persons and even free blacks at the time, in most cases, were not allowed in taverns. So although there were people airing their grievances with the crown, it was still primarily an in-inclusive space. Both Burr and Hamilton would have debated in areas like taverns during this time. Hamilton gave a speech in 1775 at a Sons of Liberty rally, which was titled The Farmer Refuted, which is also the name of another song in the musical. In 1774, Samuel Seabury pens free thoughts on the proceedings of the Continental Congress, which criticizes the Continental Congress and their proposed boycott against British goods. In his rebuttal, Hamilton pens a 78-page essay in which he refutes almost every single argument proposed by Seabury. One passage reads, There is no law, either of nature or of the civil society in which we live, that obliges us to purchase and make use of the products and manufacturers of a different land or people. It is indeed a dictate of humanity to contribute to the support and happiness of our fellow creatures, and more especially those who are allied to us by the ties of blood, interest, and mutual protection. But humanity does not require us to sacrifice our own security and welfare to the convenience or advantage of others. Self-preservation is the first principle of our nature. When our lives and properties are at stake, it would be foolish and unnatural to refrain from such measures as might preserve them, because they would be detrimental to others. Hamilton loved all of his words and his writings, but both proved a bit destructive. The student body at Princeton, which included Aaron Burr, was Whig-leaning, and students openly protested against the British Parliament. In 1770, the graduating class chose to use homespun cloth rather than imported British materials to create their commencement apparel, and in 1774, they burned an effigy of the Massachusetts royal governor Thomas Hutchinson and burned down all of the tea in the college store. By 1775, Hamilton began gaining attention from Alexander McDougall, a prominent member of the Sons of Liberty and a colonel in the Continental Army, who appointed him to captain of an artillery company fortifying Bayard's Hill in Manhattan. August 23rd is a day that we like to celebrate at Francis Tavern Museum, known as Cannonball Day. 
It celebrates the anniversary of the time Hamilton decided to put a cannonball through our roof. <laughs> uh, it is a day where John Lamb and his artillery company, which included Hamilton, attempted to steal British cannons and exchange fire with the HMS Asia, which was a 64-gun warship. The battleship then bombarded the city for hours during the night, and one of those 18-pound cannonballs came through the roof of Francis Tavern, very much scaring everybody inside, including Francis himself. Act 2, A Right-Hand Man, The Military Careers. There is a line in the song Right-Hand Man where General Washington looks at Hamilton and says, Have you met Burr? And they both respond, We keep meeting. No, do it together, because they say it together. We keep... We keep meeting. We're not doing it at the same time. Yes, we are. Not by my ears. <sighs> oh, okay. We keep we meeting. Keep, oh. <laughs> Mary! Let's just say I, on the count of three. you go first. You want to splice it together that way? I'm going to count, One, and then you're going to go, two, okay? Three. I'm going to count, though. One, two, three. We, we keep, keep meeting. meeting. Whatever. Close enough. <laughs> It's likely that the two men crossed paths in June 1776. It's usually assumed that they met each other for the first time in Elizabeth, New Jersey in the summer of 1773. By 1776, Burr was part of the Canadian expedition led by General Benedict Arnold to seize Quebec City. It was a 600-mile journey basically through the Berkshire Mountains. Everything was largely unsuccessful, but Burr was appointed as captain under Arnold. And although Hamilton is most associated with being part of Washington's staff, Burr actually did it first. Burr was part of Washington's staff for approximately 10 whole days in June of 1776 when he was stationed at Richmond Hill near today's West Village, which would become Burr's residence in the years after the war. It's assumed that although he would be working directly under Washington, he didn't feel very comfortable. Working on Washington's staff was more administrative, something the newly minted hero of Quebec wasn't expecting. Burr wanted to see the action, he wanted to be fighting, and he quickly secured a position as an aide-de-camp for General Israel Putnam, paying off very quickly in the Battle of Brooklyn later that summer. Hamilton, however, didn't become part of Washington's staff until 1777, and he served under Washington for four years. Washington entrusted Hamilton with drafting letters to Congress, handing down the general's orders, and handling other diplomatic matters. He was even able to code and decode messages meant for members of the Culper spy ring. Both Burr and Hamilton fought in the Battle of Brooklyn. Burr was fighting under General Israel Putnam and was stationed in Lower Manhattan. Burr knew the city better than Putnam and was able to successfully retreat out of the city, which included saving Hamilton's unit stationed at Bayard's Hill. Burr tricked Colonel Silliman and told him that Putnam had demanded their retreat because Silliman had refused to leave their post. During the retreat, Silliman made a wrong turn and ran into a group of British soldiers. Burr and a few others rode into the British soldiers to distract them, which gave Silliman enough time to turn around. It is 100% likely that Burr saved Hamilton's life that day. I think it's important to note that in the early years of the revolution, that the two men really don't know each other, but they're more likely to know of each other uh, more than a personal level. Burr has this established military career by 1776 when Hamilton is still kind of rising up the ranks. Act 3. See you on the other side of the war. This is the era that the men most overlap with Francis Tavern. After the Revolutionary War, both men end up as lawyers in New York City. Hamilton has a few offices in the city, 
that were within walking distance of the tavern. 69 Stone Street, 12 Garden Street, which is today's Exchange Place, and even 63 Pine Street. None of those buildings still exist. You may see a plaque. In 1789, Hamilton becomes the first Treasury Secretary, and his office was at Francis Tavern. He was joined by John Jay's Office of Foreign Affairs and Henry Knox's War Department. He always gave 110% and was very ambitious, but he was also very polarizing. He wanted to consolidate national debt, raise domestic tariffs, invest in infrastructure, and create a national bank that would have made a very strong federal government, which was a very radical idea, especially to people like Thomas Jefferson, an opponent of both Hamilton and Burr. The infrastructure for the nation's Treasury Department was largely created at 54 Pearl Street, and something that we are very proud to tell people. While Hamilton was forming the Treasury Department, Burr is appointed as the third New York Attorney General And in 1791, he was elected to the United States Senate. In 1792, Burr was offered a seat on the New York Supreme Court, but declined the appointment. Eventually, both Burr and Hamilton opened their own law offices. That's about where the similarities ended for the two. Burr charged the largest legal fee and handled more of the cases. He made upwards of $10,000 annually, even though he was always massively in debt. Hamilton would take on cases that would change his world and rarely paid attention to fees. Even their speaking styles were very different. Hamilton was notorious for speaking in paragraphs and would take two hours to say what Burr could say in 30 minutes. New York attorney John Van Ness Yates once said in court that Hamilton appealed to the head while Burr enslaved the heart. In 1800, Both Burr and Hamilton served as defense lawyers for Levi Weeks, who was charged with the murder of Elma Sands. Elma Sands was found in a well owned by the Manhattan Company, which Burr was one of the founders of. He took on the case for no fee. Hamilton was junior counsel and was president of the Manhattan Company. Even better, Levi's brother Ezra was the contractor for the company. Ah, what a tangled web we weave. Over a two-day span, the trial captivated the entire city, and it was the defense counsel which managed to get Weeks acquitted, citing that all evidence was circumstantial and could not be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. By the next week, Burr and Hamilton were standing on opposite counsels in an insurance case. Just a side note about that, the well that they found Elma Sands' body in is still in existence. It's in the basement of a Lower East Side store. I know this. I read it in a, I read a lot of, I did some Wikipedia stuff. It's fascinating. I have a whole book somewhere about it. I don't know where it is though. I would love to borrow that because I've just read the Wikipedia page. You never want one of my annotated books. It's around this time that they move from frenemies to enemies and they begin to really hate each other in a very public manner. And although Burr saw Hamilton as a genius, He believed he had a sassy mouth and a nasty attitude. Hamilton saw Burr as a cheap opportunist with no moral center and that supported anything that suited his ambition. The events that led up to the duel began in April of 1804, while Burr was campaigning for the governorship of New York. The Albany Register published a letter written by Dr. Charles D. Cooper to Philip Schuyler, Hamilton's father-in-law. The letter alluded to Hamilton's not-so-nice opinion of Burr, reportedly said at a dinner the previous winter. In the letter... Cooper also stated that he could detail a still more despicable opinion which General Hamilton had expressed of Mr. Burr. There's a couple of things to break down in this sentence. The word despicable is apparently the word that really angered Burr the most. But what's most important is the way that both men are addressed. 
Hamilton gets general in front of his name, but Burr gets Mr. If you look back at the military career, Burr is actually a colonel, and that's a higher ranking than General Hamilton. So it's an extra dig at the man. Now, when Burr read the letter, he wrote to Hamilton, demanding that either Hamilton admit or deny these alleged statements. Hamilton responded back to Burr, I have maturely reflected on the subject of your letter, and the more I have reflected, the more I have become convinced that I could not, without manifest impropriety, make the avowal or disavowal which you seem to think necessary. After the delivery of Hamilton's second letter, a second paper submitted by Nathaniel Pendleton, Hamilton's second, further offered, in relation to any other language or conversation or language of General Hamilton, which Colonel Burr will specify, a prompt or frank avowal or denial will be given. This offer was not accepted, and the challenge was formally offered by Burr and the accepted by Hamilton. They were to duel. Now here's where it gets good. On July 4th, 1804, both Burr and Hamilton attended dinner at Francis Tavern in the Long Room, hosted by the Society of the Cincinnati. This is exactly a week before the duel. The artist John Trumbull was at Francis Tavern and noticed their unusual moods. He reflected on his observations years later in his published autobiography. He writes, On the 4th of July, I dined with the Society of the Cincinnati, my old military comrades, and then met, among others, General Hamilton and Colonel Burr. The singularity of their manner was observed by all, but few had any suspicion of the cause. Burr, contrary to his wont, was silent, gloomy, sour. While Hamilton entertained with glee into all the gaiety of a convivial party, and even sung an old military song. A few days only passed when the wonder was solved by that unhappy event which deprived the United States of two of their most distinguished citizens. Hamilton was killed, and Burr was first expatriated and then sunk into obscurity for life in their compliance with a senseless custom, which ought not to have outlived the Dark Ages which it had its origin. The Duel In the early hours of July 11th, Hamilton boarded a rowboat with Nathaniel Pendleton, his second in the duel, a sort of standby and assistant, and Dr. David Hosack, his physician. They arrived at a popular dueling ground overlooking the Hudson River in Weehawken, New Jersey. At 6.30 in the morning, Burr arrived with his second, William Peter Van Ness, Matthew Davis, and John Swarthort. Hamilton took the northern position, and both men readied their Wogden and Barton dueling pistols. The only men present during the duel were Hamilton, Burr, and their seconds. Everyone else remained in their boats so as not to witness the duel and open themselves up to criminal prosecution. Hamilton viewed dueling as barbaric, but he couldn't refuse Burr's challenge without being branded a coward. Dueling came with a code of honor for gentlemen that he was forced to accept or forfeit his ability to command respect. Men. This is why women live longer than men. Sorry. I'll stop being distracted. (laughs) This is serious, Mary. Somebody died. Hamilton resolved to throw away his shot, something he wrote to Pendleton and Rufus King about. Burr did not get that memo. Burr also had the reputation of being a very good shot. The day after the duel, Burr had reported to have said that had there not been any mist, he could have shot Hamilton in the heart. All first-hand accounts of the duel agree that the two shots were fired. However, Hamilton and Burr's seconds disagree on the intervening time between the shots. Hamilton fired first without hitting Burr, but Burr's shot hit Hamilton in the lower abdomen above the right hip. 
the bullet ricocheted off of Hamilton's second or third rib, fracturing it, and caused considerable damage to his internal organs, particularly his liver and diaphragm, before becoming lodged in his first or second lumbar vertebrae. According to Pendleton's account, Hamilton collapsed immediately, dropping the pistol involuntarily, and Burr moved towards Hamilton in a speechless manner, which Pendleton deemed to be indicative of regret. Hamilton was quickly hustled away behind an umbrella by Van Ness because Hosack and the rowers were already approaching. Burr returned on his barge, and he had breakfast in the city as if nothing had happened. Hamilton succumbed to his wounds on July 12, 1804, and is laid to rest in Trinity Church on July 14th. All of New York City grieves. Governor Morris gives an impassioned eulogy. The bells toll at Trinity Church, which had been previously illegal because of the noise that they had made. They toll for the whole day. And the students of Columbia lead a processional in honor of their alumni. Here is an excerpt of the eulogy given by Governor Morris. Fellow citizens, if on this sad, this solemn occasion, I should endeavor to move your commiseration, it would be doing injustice to that sensibility which has been so generally and so justly manifested. Far from attempting to excite your emotions, I must try to repress my own, and yet I fear that instead of the language of a public speaker, you will hear only the lamentations of a bewailing friend. But I will struggle with my bursting heart to portray that heroic spirit which has flown to the mansions of bliss. The penetrating eye of Washington soon perceived the manly spirit which animated his youthful bosom. By that excellent judge of men he was selected as an aide, and thus he became early acquainted with and was a principal actor in the most important scenes of our revolution. At the siege of York, he perniciously insisted, and he obtained the command of a forlorn hope. He stormed the redoubt, but let it be recorded that not one single man of the enemy perished. His gallant troops, emulating the heroism of their chief, checked the uplifted arm and sparred a foe no longer resisting. Shortly after the war, your favor, no, your discernment, called him into public office. You sent him to the convention at Philadelphia. He there assisted in forming that constitution which is now the bond of our union, the shield of our defense, and the source of our prosperity. At the time when our government was organized, we were without funds, though not without resources. To call them into action and establish order in the finances, Washington sought for splendid talents, for extensive information, and, above all, he sought for sterling, incorruptible integrity. All these he found in Hamilton. The administration which Washington formed was one of the most efficient, one of the best that in any country has ever blessed with, and the result was a rapid advance in power and prosperity, of which there is no example in any other age or nation. The part which Hamilton bore was universally known. Oh, my fellow citizens, remember this solemn testimonial, that he was not ambitious. Yet he was charged with ambition and wounded by the imputation when he lay down his command. He declared in the proud independence of his soul that he would never accept of any office, unless in a foreign war he should be called on to expose his life in defense of his country. This determination was immovable. It was his fault that his opinions and his resolutions could not be changed. 
Knowing of his own firm purpose, he was diligent at the charge that he sought for place or power. He was ambitious only of glory, but he was deeply solicitous for you. For himself he feared nothing, but he feared that bad men might by false professions acquire your confidence and abuse it to your ruin. Fellow citizens, you have long witnessed his professional conduct and felt his unrivaled eloquence. You know how well he performed the duties of a citizen. You know that he never courted your favor by adulation or the sacrifice of his own judgment. You have seen him contending against you and saving your dearest interests, as it were, in spite of yourselves. And you now feel and enjoy the benefits resulting from that firm energy of his conduct. Bear this in testimony of the memory of my departed friend. I charge you to protect his fame. It is all he has left. All these poor orphan children will inherit from their father. But, my countrymen, that fame may be a rich treasure to you also. Let it be the test by which you examine those who solicit your favor. Disregarding professions, view their conduct, and on a doubtful occasion ask, Would Hamilton have done this thing? You all know how he perished. On this scene, I cannot, I must not dwell. It might excite emotions too strong for your better judgment. Suffer not your indignation to lead to any act which might again offend your insulted majesty of the law. On this part, as from his lips, though with my voice, for his voice you will hear no more. Let me entreat you to respect yourself. For the last few years, Francis Tavern Museum has celebrated the life and death of Alexander Hamilton at Trinity Church. This year, in response to COVID-19, we were forced to cancel this programming. However, we hope that this podcast will be just as informative and engaging. Thanks for listening. Da, 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 da. This is an episode of Tavern Talks. Da, 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 da.